0: This is a CBC Podcast.
1: Hey, I'm Claire Bonnieman.
0: And I'm Min Dariwal.
1: And welcome to The Loop. This week, we're talking about fighting the pandemic on two fronts and going beyond our own backyard. Plus, we'll also talk about how an Albertan is calling for a national awakening when it comes to disability pride and meet some teens eager to get their vaccines. But first, we're looking across the ocean to India, where COVID-19 has hit a critical point. And Min, you're going to kind of take us there.
0: Yes, absolutely, Claire. You know, more than 23 million people have COVID in India. And this week, the death toll went past a quarter of a million people. In just 24 hours, nearly 350,000 people contracted the virus and over 4,000 died. And I mean, I don't know if you've been watching some of the TV reports. I mean, the numbers just keep climbing. They're staggering. Well, the images alone... uh, are tough to watch. right? I mean, the parking lots outside of hospitals, people lined up. um, I mean, the situation is pretty dire over there.
1: Chaos feels like the only word to really describe what's happening.
0: Absolutely. I mean, especially when you look at the numbers and I feel for the people there. I feel for the many, uh, you know, people who have uh, relatives there who are living all over the world. Yeah. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of people in India. So, um, you know, even right here in our own backyard.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And and people are working to try and access drugs and medical care, even just information at this point. Mm -hmm. Here in Edmonton, uh, Shikta Batra is watching as most of her extended family is struggling in India.
2: Most of my family um, is in Delhi and Mumbai and some smaller cities in northern India. But uh, mostly my family in Delhi and Mumbai are being affected by the situation that's going on right now because there seems to be a shortage of all the drugs and the medicines that are needed for survival at this point um, once they have contracted COVID-19. And especially with the new strain that's come out in India, the new variant, it's just getting difficult for people to um, cope up. And unfortunately, our hospitals in India don't have enough supplies to keep up with the demand. I mean, my family, it's, it's sad enough, but... Because once they're at the hospital, it's a general saying that everyone's saying once you go out to the hospital, there's no return from there. So you're not going to come back alive. And that's why most of the people are trying to keep up their oxygen levels at home. And I go to sleep at night. I wake up in the morning and my phone is filled with messages from family members and friends. I wake up and I'm scared to check my phone because on a daily basis, there are people dying.
0: I mean, how terrifying would that be, you know? I can't being even this far away and yeah trying to get trying to you know get some sleep yeah meanwhile your brain is going a million miles an hour Absolutely. thinking about your family thinking about what's going on over there the situation yeah. yeah i've talked to several people here too i mean i talked to a lady last week who whose mom passed away and I, it's just they're help, they feel helpless right because they they can't jump on a plane and go over there i mean you would be going into a hornet's nest really oh my gosh, with yeah. all the cases and everything like that so uh and and you know for people who haven't been there it's just I mean, it's sensory overload with the amount of people that are in those cities. I mean, yeah. they're so densely populated. Think of going to a Toronto or a New York and then multiplying it by 10, right? So, it's overwhelming. Yeah. There's no, there's nowhere to go where you have space for yourself. So, yeah. and in a lot of cases, I think people are living, you know, multi generational families in homes. There's eight, nine, 10 people. So, you could see how it would easily spread and go right through yeah. a home. There's and no then that sort of, new variant, too, right? And the new variant. Yeah. It's, that's, uh, you know, the X factor, too, for yeah. sure. Yeah. on how, how fast that's spreading and how it is affecting people.
1: Yeah, it's some pretty awful math. But there are people, of course, trying to find solutions, some right, right here in Alberta. You know, we, I mean, we mentioned it, too, with time change, though, right? We've got our own pandemic pressures. But people are working mm-hmm. to offer as much virtual help as possible. People like Dr. Bavini Gohill, who's an acute care physician at South Health Campus in Calgary and the chair of the Medical Advisory Board for the Child Foundation. Hey, doctor. Good morning. So how did you react as you started to hear news of the COVID situation in India?
3: Uh, it was just unbelievable. When we were watching the videos and hearing from family members what was going on, it was just something we, we couldn't even visualize. Uh, so we were very, um, we, were like, we were all very emotional about the whole situation.
1: And I think our first thought process was like, what can we do to help? Tell me about the work that you're doing to support folks in India right now. What what have you started?
3: We've been speaking to a lot of uh, physicians, different individuals, and asking them, what are your needs? Because we do not want to overstep any boundaries or end up providing things that may not be helpful. Mm -hmm. So we do have uh, two streams. We have a stream um, particularly focusing on rural India. And we know that rural villages have even less access to health care and there is less of a health infrastructure in in those parts. So our first sort of line of thinking was, what can we do to support COVID in the village, considering we weren't a designated government hospital to actually manage COVID? We know oxygen is scarce in these areas. So we've actually acquired about 20 oxygen concentrators and the first 10 were actually delivered on Sunday. And actually the first oxygen concentrator went out to a first family member in the village, which was amazing. At the same time, what we're starting to do is virtual consults. So we have two local physicians on ground. They will uh, be managing a home COVID program whereby they will assess patients that come into the hospital and those they feel need oxygen and need acute care management. They will be admitted to our COVID home program, provided a COVID kit, which we are assembling, and they will go home with the COVID kit as well as an oxygen concentrator and other monitoring equipment. And we will monitor them remotely and the local docs will do virtual consults every two days. They will also be supported by us Canadian physicians here who will be educating them, building capacity and scope of practice in them to actually manage these COVID patients. We've actually acquired a telehealth system called ICE Health Systems, which we're going to be using to document our medical information as well as do virtual consults. The other stream that we have going is more city led. And what we hope to do there is to send out COVID kits as well to these uh, field hospitals that patients that have mild symptoms that don't need to be admitted to hospital, they can actually go home with these kits as well and be managed at home. And potentially, we we are looking at ways
1: that we can collaborate with them. And, you you know, we keep talking about keeping patients at home, keeping them out of the hospitals. How important is it to properly support patients at home um, in the situation that India is in right now with COVID? It is vital.
3: The problem we're hearing down on ground is that patients are going to the hospital too early. They're panicked. They're worried because there's a lack of hospital beds. Patients are searching for days to find a hospital. And what's happening is there's a bit of a bit of plugging with the system because you've got these patients that need hospital care. But you've got also these patients that are coming too early and triaging is very slow right now because they don't have beds. So it is vital that the patients that don't need to be hospitalized actually stay home and have some sort of physician support at home so they can be managed at home and then educated about when they actually need to attend hospital. Rural communities lack a lot of inpatient structure, have a lack of resources, um, a lot less than cities do. So actually managing patients at home is going to be a crucial part of, of the care in rural communities.
1: COVID, of course, you know, we're still hitting peaks here in Alberta. You're now reaching across the world to assist in another COVID crisis. It's incredible work, but this has to be really challenging for all the physicians involved, no? It, it is. <laughs> when this happened, it was this flood of physicians that wanted to
3: get together. So we created this uh, fairly robust and large uh Um, task force and we have some very experienced positions but you're right they're also managing a pandemic on this side as well so a lot of this is done in our own time we're usually doing this on the in the evenings along with when we have an hour or two here where we're doing fundraising we're sending out emails we know that this momentum for everybody is eventually going to slow down and how do we create a sustainable model that can be continued to be sustained as we slowly back away and let, let India sort of continue to manage uh, the COVID pandemic, but give them all the tools and resources that they need. And a number of things need to happen before that, before that even happens, including a reliable supply of medications, oxygen and a reliable
1: supply of healthcare workers as well. I mean, the telehealth side of this is particularly interesting because it's something that we're all starting to uh, experience more. It's not normally across oceans and with a 12-hour time difference. Um, what are those phone calls like? What What are the conversations with patients? I've done uh, probably half a dozen, and it's it is definitely
3: tough. I think the hardest thing is is, you know, often this type of help is we need help, we need help now, we want to talk to someone now, which can be really challenging with a time difference. So often I'll get a text saying, can you talk now? And I'll be like, oh, I've got five, I've got 10 minutes, 10, 15 minutes. Okay, I think I can do it. And that 10, 15 minute conversation ends up being 40 minutes. Mm -hmm. The time difference is definitely challenging because we're going into 11 o'clock at night, into midnight, or doing very early hour consultations So that was, definitely one challenge the questions vary a lot of them are around trajectory and treatment what is this the right treatment is this the right drug and the other question is is when do I seek hospital care when do I know that I need to take them to the hospital and they need higher level of care like how do you answer that when you know there's no beds and ICU capacity is full these are questions that I never thought as a physician I would have to deal with
1: what does it mean to you as a physician to be able to support doctors and patients in India at this moment?
3: You know, I've been asked this uh, a few times and, and I've been referring to an analogy. We are a drop in the bucket in terms of what we're doing. You've got a population of 1.3 billion people. So, I mean, our reach is, is is small. But if more and more people keep adding to to this bucket and more drops get added eventually that bucket's going to become full and eventually you're going to have enough sustainable supply that the bucket can remain full and so for me I feel like I'm a drop in the bucket honestly and and I sometimes I just feel like I'm not doing enough sometimes I feel like are we really making an impact and and I think that I can only do what I can recognizing how populous India is and for me it's, it's one of those things where I, I feel like I'm pretty insignificant in all of this um, but I know a lot of people have said well this is great work and I feel like well I'm just a drop in the bucket. <laughs>
1: It's easy to mark the last year or so as one of a growing awareness. Marginalized groups speaking out, asking for all of us to do more in the fight for equity. But some are also just asking to be seen and recognized. Andrea Van Voocht is the president of Disability Pride Alberta and recently penned an op-ed in the Toronto Star calling for a national awakening about disabilities. Hey, Andrea. Hi there. Thanks for having me. No, thank you for joining me. I mean, the op-ed struck me. Can can you tell me about this awakening that you're calling for?
4: Well, I watched the movie Crip Camp and I was inspired to start talking a little bit more loudly to my uh, community of disabled people, people with disabilities. And so not only should we be celebrating uh, the disability community, but people from outside of the disability
1: community should be working on empowering them. And I guess this kind of speaks to the idea behind Disability Pride Alberta, right? How how did the organization start and, and what kind of work do you do?
4: The organization started after I did a research project in university where I asked, why aren't we teaching kindergarten to grade 12 about disabilities in school? And so throughout my research, the conclusion that I came to is that the disability community isn't loud enough and we're not loud enough because we're not united. We've united in uh, different cycles for many times human rights, but not always in a way that is inviting uh, celebration. And so I attended a celebration for for disabilities in Vancouver and I decided to uh, make something happen in Calgary. So I connected with a local advocacy group And uh, we created a disability celebration and parade for over a thousand people.
1: Wow, what what was that like? It was a party. (laughs) Yeah,
4: it was was a total party. So there was people all races, all ages, all sexes, disabilities, non disabilities. Uh, We marched down the street. It it was a
1: really fun time. Oh, in COVID especially, that sounds amazing. It's been a minute since we've all had a party. Exactly. Well, well, you talk about the idea of being loud. Can you tell me about the process you went through to claim your own disability and claim that title and that word for yourself? Uh, Well, the process for me took quite a while.
4: So I was diagnosed with epilepsy when I was 19 years old, and now I'm 36. Uh, Took about a decade for me to claim it, and it actually came about through my reading of a book called Disability Politics and Theory by a person named A.J. Withers. A.J. Withers talks about how if we speak about uh, someone as living with a disability, then we're acting as if it's something that might be overcome. But in truth, I'll have epilepsy forever. And so I'm a disabled person. It's, I take three different pills twice a day. I don't drive a car, etc., etc. So I started to think the word disability and disabled as part of my
1: identity rather than something that was a hindrance. Well, it is an interesting thing, right? One in five Canadians live with a disability. It's a group that most of us will end up joining at one point or another in our life as we age and go through different experiences, whether it's temporary or permanent. Mm-hmm. How challenging is it, though, to kind of move towards that idea of uniting a community that is so diverse and encapsulates so many experiences?
4: I mean, one of the reasons that I think the conversation that I started is because we're now in popular culture. Yeah. Right? Never before. Has a documentary film like this been in front of the world and the way it was shared? The movie was funny and intriguing and romantic. And suddenly we have people that may have never seen the community, not only learning about it, but also
1: enjoying the community. You said you watched the movie twice, right? I watched the movie twice. Did you watch the movie? <laughs> I, I started watching it actually last night. Unfortunately, I wake up stupid early for my work here, so I only got through okay. the first part of it. But it it's something to be said for when art and movies and these moments in pop culture, they hit chords with us. Can you tell me especially just more about the movie? What had you th- seen that you maybe had never seen before?
4: I saw the different communities, Connecting with each other in an optimistic way. People with cerebral palsy, people with polio, people with quadriplegia, etc. Connecting with each other outside of their own cyclones. And so what I mean when I say cyclone is often the different disability groups stay within themselves. When I saw these people connecting with each other, I felt that it was in a way that I've been trying to do with disability pride and it just showed a m- movement that made change. And also people having fun, yeah. you know, those, like, you know, you want to be a teenager. You want to go behind, I think they were saying something about going behind the shed and making out. <laughs> and also the music too, right? Like yeah. there's a fabulous soundtrack and uh, Michelle Obama and Barack Obama were part of creating the film. And I'm pretty sure Michelle Obama's father, I think, has multiple sclerosis. These people that have um, large opportunities and large networks are saying, you need to hear this story.
1: And, it, and it's working. And it's working, Yeah. I want to talk, too, about the idea of accessibility, because the work you do at Disability Pride Alberta, you know, it spans all this different uh, disabilities, visible and invisible, too. And I think that when we think about accessibility, at least for me, it's really easy to kind of think of the ones we can see, right? We all think about ramps. We know sign language interpreters became a really big thing in the pandemic, too. But how limited is that understanding? What other things are really important to keep in mind?
4: Something that I think is important to keep in mind is that accessibility goes far beyond physical. An important topic of conversation right now in Canada is that there is a Canadian Disability Benefit Initiative taking place. So, if we look at accessibility as finances at this time with a pandemic happening, we have a new understanding of finances. Uh, For example, the so people are receiving $2,000 a month.
2: Mm-hmm.
4: Uh, if you look like at that in comparison to the assured income for the severely handicapped in Alberta, that's $315 less than that amount. And so I'm thinking, you know, when we think about accessibility, also think about finances. And now that we have a new understanding uh, and a new-grown empathy for situations, financial situations, I think that Canada can look at the support for uh, people with disabilities in a new way. And I think a big part of that is there are a lot of Canadians that I'm positive are grateful to have received some guaranteed income in a health situation that they had little control over Mm
2: -hmm.
4: that is comparable to someone with a health condition and or disability, Uh, You can be working your best and doing your best, and you still may not have the finances to make anything beyond the bare necessities accessible. And sometimes the bare necessities aren't actually accessible with the amount of money you
1: get. There's been this experience across the country now that hopefully will open more people's mind to how it affects other people outside of a pandemic, right? Mm -hmm, Definitely. In general, too, there's been a lot of change to how society operates, some arguably good, some obviously very, very bad. But I wonder if there's been any changes that you've seen when it comes to accessibility that you want to see continue post-pandemic for people with disabilities. Uh, I was shocked and surprised
4: and very happy to see how quickly uh, workplaces adapted to facilitate work from home. Hmm. Now we found how quick it can turn around if you need to work from home. So I think that would be a pro of it. Yeah. I'm not sure if I can label this as a positive, but it's definitely something that has grown knowledge is the fact about isolation and kindness. All of us going through something similar, we have have a new understanding of isolation and we have a new uh, appreciation for kindness. And so I think that now we can look at people with health conditions and or disabilities and understand that that isolation might be their a regular thing. And also a little bit of kindness can go a really long way.
1: So as we're recording this, I have yet to get my vaccine. Min, you've got yours.
0: I do. Yes. yes,
1: I have an appointment. I do. It is going to happen for me eventually this weekend.
0: Well, that's awesome.
1: I thank you, but I do have to say mm-hmm. that um, I'm eating up all of the social media posts, all of the stories, all of the memes about getting vaccines. Yeah, you're making a face right now. I'm kind of making a
0: face. <laughs> I've been watching them all, and you know what? It's uh, it's great, but I I just I, I haven't I didn't feel compelled to no. You know, stop the nurse halfway through her shot so that I could get a selfie.
1: That's true. The actual, like, mid-shot selfie is a little weird. I'm not a big fan of needles either. So the whole, like, watching all the needle go in and out, not a big fan.
0: Imagine the (laughs) the nurse's perspective. They're probably like, okay, how many... Times this is this going to happen? They yeah. probably, it's they're probably, they're probably to numb their job.
1: to it now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> then, They've
0: got to do like probably, you know, 30, 40, 50 a day.
1: Yeah. And I mean, what I love though is the well crafted jokes, right? Like yeah. the 5G, the microchips.
0: That stuff is funny. But, mm-hmm. you
1: know, but it is something that I think uh, is really heartwarming yeah. to see.
0: It is. And, and I mean, it's encouraging. And I think for people who are on the fence, yeah. I think uh, hopefully it helps well, them make a decision yeah. and decide, right? Because Bandwagon. It, it, you know, yeah, people are doing it, yeah, and and I, you know, the other day I was watching a Golden State Warriors game, and I saw fans in the stands, mm-hmm. uh, courtside, and I was like, it, it's coming back. You can it's almost taste it, like like you know, normalcy yeah. is slowly coming back, and and that helps, right? To see that, it gives you hope. It does. It gives you hope and and to think that things are slowly getting back to normal in different parts of the world because everybody's on a different schedule. Yeah. Right? Definitely. Everybody's on the, we're finally getting the vaccines now. And it's been great to see people running to the pharmacies to get their yeah. shots. Right, and, 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 and we're young people.
1: Very lucky because, yeah, young people, um, 12 and up, can get Pfizer. Right. I mean, you know, teenagers here are getting vaccines before doctors in other countries. And that is something that is, you know, a, a sign of a lot of disparity mm-hmm. for sure, but is also... Something that I think is cool to see teens jumping up and getting excited about.
0: Yeah, I was um, kind of worried. I wasn't sure how you know the, the younger Albertans yeah. were going to react if they were kind of kind of be you know laissez faire, just kind of okay, whatever. I'll get it when I get <laughs> the it. Cool teen yeah. move of like. Whoa, is but what? we, I talked to a couple of teens uh, the Friday before they opened it up to everybody twelve and up, and, yeah. and these, they're two nineteen year olds. They're just down by White Ave, and they were like, I can't wait <laughs> to get my shot and get back to normal mm-hmm. like I, I want my life to you know fire up again
1: it's something that we are hearing from all ages 19 you know down to the 12 year olds right mm-hmm. so Sophia Sharif, Madison Wong and Sonia meta they're three grade 10 students in Edmonton um, but they've all jumped at the chance to get their vaccinations this week and I, I am That's I will awesome. admit I'm very jealous that they're getting their vaccines before, before me. you. <laughs> but I'm also very happy for them um, but here's just some of what they shared this week on Radioactive
5: Despite the best efforts of our teachers and parents right now, our learning has been disrupted with the switch to online. And so I hope now that our age group can start getting vaccinated, that hopefully we can get back to in-person school. Oh, I was ecstatic. Um, I know my grandparents were able to get it.
6: And so when I found out I would be able to, it was just kind of like, I was very excited. I gave up soccer to take care of my grandparents, who are immunocompromised, and I've been doing online school for about three quarters of the year now. <laughs> yeah, it's been, it's been challenging in the sense that um, it's my first year in high school. But I think managing through it, knowing that like my family's there, that's been great.
7: Like with the constant shift to online and in-person, it's pretty hard to keep up with the academics sometimes. As well as I'm a part of a lot of extracurriculars, which all have had to move online. So it's been, it's been a pretty different format. And I'm looking forward to having more youth um, being vaccinated so hopefully we can return in-person. A lot of people also rely on just social interaction to get them through the day. And I know just interacting with people has always helped me. And obviously with COVID, um, in-person and face-to-face interactions have gone down quite a bit.
5: Um, It's been pretty frustrating getting put online for school and sport. Um, I play a lot of soccer and so not being able to practice has interrupted my schedule and some goals that I've had. But having like a strong family at home and being able to spend more time with them is a positive side to it and so I've enjoyed that.
6: I don't think I've ever been this excited for a vaccine before. (laughs) I wasn't even thinking about the fact that it was a needle. I noticed that um, there was it was kind of different than a flu shot, you didn't feel it go in at all. I had a couple of side effects, I got the Pfizer vaccine, and um, I believe what the pharmacist told me is, and I think this is correct, is that people's bodies react differently to the vaccine depending on if they've been exposed to the type of virus that coronavirus is. And so um, my body probably has never encountered it because um, I had a cold, um, I had a low-grade temperature, and it was all accentuated because I have um, seasonal allergies. But it was something very manageable. I I was so hopeful after this because I know that... You're 87% um, protected, I believe, after the first vaccine. And knowing this, um, I feel a lot safer. I know there's a lot of anxiety, especially around a lot of my friends who were in person, um, have been in person the last couple weeks, which I was um, online. But um, I think having to isolate um, the anxiety of knowing there's there could be anyone around you who could have been a close contact or who has the virus that is a large concern and
5: i think that anxiety was dialed down a lot so everyone has the right to choose in the end if they want to get the vaccine or not but i feel it's important that parents and youth have the conversation about it at least and i have trust in our scientists and experts as well so i'm not worried about getting the vaccine myself and both my parents have got both doses they got pfizer and
7: they've been fine they had no side effects and so it's a really positive thing but i would strongly encourage families to give serious consideration to getting youth immunized immunized um, not only does it protect the youth but also um, the people around them so for people who are immunocompromised or just can't receive the vaccine at this time it will also um, go towards protecting them I think for me, it's always been one of my dreams to study abroad and obviously that's not as probable during COVID and I think that would be such a great experience and I'm really looking forward to the day in which I can do that.
5: Um, I'm really looking forward to spending time with my grandma and getting back to my sport of course, training and games. I think the thing that I'm most excited for doing is um, giving my friends some
6: great big hugs. <laughs> um, I miss, I miss showing affection to my friends. and.
1: Yeah. So there you go. That was Sophia, Madison, and Sonia, three high schools, uh, three high schoolers in the city who are all eager to get Pfizered and give friends hugs.
0: Absolutely, like yeah. same.
1: The Loop is a weekly podcast from CBC Edmonton, and our team is Min Darwall, Leslie Goldstone, Corey Haberstock, Christina Silva, and James Evans. Our theme music is Change Your Mind by Edmonton musician John Common. And I'm Claire Bonnieman. So thank you so much for listening. There's so much more to know. So you can get into the loop with us every Friday. And Min, where do people go if they want to tell us how we're doing?
0: It's pretty easy. <laughs>
1: uh,
0: they can uh, certainly go to theloop at cbc.ca and uh, you can leave us information there.
1: Give us five stars.
0: Yeah, give us five stars.
1: <laughs> or social media too. You can use the loop cbc as a hashtag or yeah. you can find me and Min. Min, you're at.
0: Mine's easy. It's easier than the, the previous one about the loop. It's uh, my first name and last name. So Min, M-I-N, Dariwal, D-H-A-R-I-W-A-L.
1: Find him on Twitter. And I'm yeah. Nami Knob on Twitter.
0: That sounds backwards.
1: It's, it's my last name backwards. You can just let us know what's what, how you feel about the show, and make sure to subscribe and download the loop on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts.